Well, good morning. Welcome everybody to the Aliyah Day. It is my joy to be with everybody today. A beautiful second day of the week. <clears throat> Parsha Shemot. Everybody is looking beautiful. We have people tuning in here from uh, across the fruited plain, literally from coast to coast, from California to Florida. People here from uh, beautiful Seoul, from Germany. Tulsa, Shimon, watching from Tulsa, welcome, glad you're here, sir. Kansas City, how about the Kansas City Chiefs, kind of uh, manhandled the Texans yesterday, it's kind of sad for us, but good for the Kansas City people, <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, welcome, people watching from uh, India and South Africa, uh, people watching from Shemayim, it's wonderful, it's glad you're here, Brukashim. we're reading today the... Uh, <clears throat> oh, Dominico. Dominico is watching from uh, uh, Poland, I believe. Right, Dominico? Welcome from uh, Poland. Amazing. So glad you're here. Brukoshem. In Minnesota. Rhonda watching from Minnesota. Welcome. So glad you're here. So beautiful to have everybody this morning. Brukoshem. Shemot. Parasha Shemot. And uh, Louisiana. One of our uh, home, part of my, my family, my mother's side of the family, from Louisiana, Nolens, that area, Brukashim. Where are we? The second Aliyah. Here we are. Let's turn here to the uh, Art Scroll Chumash, page uh, 295. Doscientos noventa No, Chapter t uh, 1, chapter 1. We're going to be reading in verse 18, talking about our our story. We left off yesterday with the midwives who were told by Pharaoh to be sure and kill the baby boys. You can let the baby girls live. But our midwives are none other than Yochaved, who is going to end up being the mother of Moshe. And Miriam, who is the sister of, of Moshe. <clears throat> and they refuse to carry out Pharaoh's command. So here it is. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing that you have caused the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are strong like bull. That's not what they said actually. They said they, they're unlike the Egyptian women for they are experts. Before the midwife uh, come to them, they have given birth already. So God benefited the midwives, and the people increased and became very strong, and it was because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Now the sages bring down when it talks about houses there, that he, he made them dynasties. Basically, he blessed Miriam, he blessed Yochaved, that they should have eternal inheritances. In fact, they do. Miriam, uh, in fact, the Mashiach is actually referred to as Miriam's well, because we know that the, the well, um, there was a literal rock that followed us around the wilderness. We'll probably discuss this, I'm sure, at some other time where you come across that uh, particular topic. But the, there was a, a rock, a particular rock, that followed us around the wilderness, and from that rock sprang forth the well that fed all of the um, 
all of us in the wilderness and all of our animals the, the water. And that well was Mashiach, and it was referred to as Miriam's well. So anyway, it says, Pharaoh commanded his entire people, saying, Every son that will be born into the Nile River shall you throw him, and every daughter you shall keep alive. Uh, again, the sages talk about this particular edict, and they say that on the one hand it's talking about infanticide. We're going to kill babies, uh, innocent children. And on the other hand, it's talking about immersion in the Nile being a euphemism for immersion into Jewish culture, excuse me, Egyptian culture. And just the sages point out that one of the plans of the enemy is to immerse us in the culture because there's two ways that, that Hasatan curse be he, that the forces of darkness or what have you can kill us. One is by physically killing us. And the other is by causing us to assimilate. Now chapter 2 uh, begins here. And so we read chapter 2 This about the birth of Moses. There's quite a lot to say, um, to say here about the birth of Moses. And prayerfully we're going to get to some of these patterns today. But it says, A man went from the house of Levi, and he took a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw... That he was good, and she hid him for three months. She could not hide him any longer, so he took for him a wicker basket, smeared it with clay and pitch, placed the boy into it, and placed it among the reeds at the river, at the bank of the river. His sister, that would be Miriam, stationed herself at a distance to know what would be done with him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe by the river, and her maidens walked along the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maidservant, and she took it. She opened it and saw it, the boy, and behold, a youth was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and summon for you a wet nurse from the Hebrew women? Who will nurse the boy for you? The daughter of Pharaoh said, Go. The girl went and summoned the boy's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this boy and nurse him for me, and I will give you pay. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. The boy grew up. She bought, brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was her son. She called his name Moses, or Moshe. And she said, For I drew him out of the water. So it's, a, it's an amazing story, a story of faith, a mother putting her baby boy in a basket uh, to try to protect him from being murdered, uh, giving him up uh, to God, as it were, in an act of complete faith, and ends up being his nursemaid, and ended up uh, uh, the ability to um, nurse her own uh, baby boy. It's amazing. Now, I want to come back there's, to this story of uh, Moses being born, because there are some intriguing patterns that we're going to see here if we look for them closely enough. First and foremost, I want to say this, because I've talked recently, the drosh on Shabbat, I brought this up, uh, it, it has come up um, at various points in the previous Aliyot, uh, about the fact uh, that the name uh, Jew and Israel and Hebrew are all synonymous terms. Um, there are not uh, 
there's not Israelites and then there's Jews and all that kind of um, nonsense. It says here, in uh, one of the uh, insights to Rabbi Monk's commentary, it talks about the children of Israel. So the term B'nai Yisrael, it says this does not refer only to the actual children of Jacob, that is Israel, but is a collective name for the Jewish people as a whole. The first time that this term is used for such a purpose is in Genesis 46.8, when the Jews left Egypt in Exodus 14.8. They were called children of Israel just as when they arrived there. This shows us that throughout their exile, they always remain worthy of this name. So just another, another one of, I don't know, a, a couple of score of, of sources to reiterate this point, um, which I think is important and valid so that we can rescue people, and I do mean rescue, from the clutches of the diabolical uh, false theology that exists out there about uh, the two-house, Big Brother, Yehuda, and all that uh, nonsense. <clears throat> I want to save people from that because it's so, that is such a destructive doctrine. It's actually more destructive. That doctrine of the, the Hebrew roots, two-house stuff is actually more destructive than Christianity. So, um, going back to, I'm going to go back to the Kale Tumash now, and look at Capiculodos. So, Pharaoh's, it says that Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe in the Nile. I'm going to share an insight with you, which probably most of you have never heard before. Um, some of you, if you've been around here for any length of time, I've heard this before. But some have never heard this insight before. Um, and it's very instructive because it, it, it's, it's so important, as I've, as I've said so many times, um, to really look at the patterns. So here it is. This is what it says. This is the Kehot Chumash breaking down this verse. This is the expanded, the amplified. This is the Jewish amplified Bible, if you will. As it brings in insights from various sources like Rashi, like the Talmud, Sota, 12b, etc. This is what it says. Just then, at what point are we talking about? We're talking about when Yochebed, Yochebed put Moshe into the basket and put him into the river. It says, just then, at just the right time, at just the right moment, Pharaoh's daughter Batya, now her name was Batya, the one he's daughter of God. Why? Because she had converted to Judaism. That's what's going on here. So just then, Pharaoh's daughter Batya, who had decided to renounce idolatry, went down to bathe. That is, to ritually immerse herself in the Nile. She was going to use the Nile as a mikvah so that she could deny idolatry. So it says, in order to spiritually cleanse herself of idolatry, which would include the worship of the Nile as an idol. So, Badia has this illumination that the gods of Egypt are false gods. She wants to renounce them. She wants to walk away from idol worship, and so she, she decides that she is going to go into the Nile, and she's going to immerse herself 
uh, in the in, for a ritual immersion purpose in order to accept the God of Israel to be born again a Jewess. And from this moment forward, she's recognized as such. This comes, by the way, from the Talmud in Sota 12b. Now, when she emerges from the water, I want you to notice something. Who is it that God grants the, the, um, uh, the great honor to of taking care of Moses, who is the Redeemer, who is the embodiment of Torah, to the extent that the Torah itself, one of its names is the Law of Moses, which we know it's the Law of God, and yet the Torah often refers to itself as the Law of Moses. Why? Because Moses is the embodiment of the Torah. He's the symbol of the Torah. You could say he's the image of the Torah. You could say he's the manifestation, as it were, of the Torah. You could say those things euphemetically about Moshe. And so, to whom does God, to whom does God grant the great privilege of raising this image of the Torah, this representative of the Torah, as her own adoptive son, thereby protecting him from harm by forces of evil? And the answer is the daughter who was a convert to Judaism. Now that ought to blow your mind. On a, as an aside, on a completely different note, not, uh, well, not a t totally different note, but as an aside, how many of you have heard of the uh, Fantastic Four? One of the members of the Fantastic Four... Um, Mr. Fantastic, he, uh, he could stretch his arms, right? He could stretch his whole limbs. He was like, uh, he could stretch, right? He had, he had that power. You know, they say um, that most of the superheroes were uh, invented, made up by Jews. It's true. It's an article. There's an article about this. It's a, what I said is a fact. And I just thought about that this morning because I was looking at the inside here, and, and uh, one of the insights suggests that Batya stretched, when it says she stretched out her arm to receive the basket, it says that the basket was actually uh, quite a ways away. And so that God enabled that her arm supernaturally stretched long so that she could receive the basket. So she was the original Mrs. Fantastic from the Fantastic Four. I just want to throw that out there. I think it's interesting. So in verse 6, this is... Going back to the amplified version of uh, the Hebrew Bible, as it were. <clears throat> this is from the Kehot Humash. It says, opening the basket, she saw the baby. She also sensed God's presence surrounding him. Now, we're going to come back in a second and talk about the miraculous birth of, of uh, Moshe. Because it's going to sound very familiar to the miraculous birth of the Redeemer Yeshua. As it should. Why? Because God always follows his patterns. 
But anyway, back to our story. Opening the basket, she saw the baby. She also sensed God's presence surrounding him. Although the baby looked like a baby, he was crying with the voice of a mature boy. Because he was crying, she, pay, she had pity on him. When she saw that he was circumcised, she said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Batya tried to use Egyptian wet nurses to suckle the baby, but he refused. So the, the baby, the reason they had to get a work, wet nurse was because he would not allow the, uh, he would not uh, nurse from the pagan non-Jewish women. Why? What is it? What do the insights say as to the reason why he would not drink of the uh, uh, the, the the milk, as it were, of the pagan uh, women? By the way, just so you know, just popped in my mind, just uh, for what it's worth. Um, halakhically, a woman's milk is parv. I'm just throwing that out there. So for those of you who are nursing babies and you're wondering, my baby has just nursed, can, uh, can they have the uh, ground up? Beef or whatever, out of the little baby uh, beef. Uh, the answer to the question is yes, because your milk is parf. But anyway, that's just an aside. So it says here, Egyptian wet nurses tried to suckle me, wouldn't do it. Why? Because it says here, his mouth was destined to converse directly with God. God did not allow him to nurse from a pagan. So my question to that is, do you know a hide much or do you messianic Gentile much? The reason I bring this up, I, I always like to point out whenever we come across an insight that completely destroys the idea of the Messianic Gentile I, uh, false theology or the Noahide false theology, which is really kind of one and the same. Why? How does this refute that, Rabbi? Well, did you happen to notice that the Redeemer would not drink of the, of, of the Gentile nursemaids? Why? Because he didn't want to have that because he was going to be speaking directly with God. He would only nurse from a Jewish woman. That's a Selah moment in case you're wondering. This is, a, this is just a, you just contemplate on that for a moment. Now what's interesting, aside from everything I've just said about Batya and the fact that she's a convert and she's given the opportunity now to receive the baby boy in the basket there's something else that's interesting to point out about Batya's conversion. This is why, you know, why is it that Lapid Judaism is, is so enthusiastic about making converts? Well, uh, for one, I think that that's exactly what um, the Tanakh teaches us is going to happen in the end times. So we want to be a part of God's plan. But the converts have a very special place. Even the sages say that where a convert stands, the, the holy righteous cannot stand. And so here we have a con. I just, I just want you to understand the magnitude of this whole story because it, it often gets missed. First of all, people don't even realize that, that this, when the daughter of Pharaoh went to, uh, down to the river, excuse me, when she went down to the river, they have no, they've never heard before anywhere that she was a convert. No one's ever said that to you. I guarantee you that the majority of people listening to me today, if you're new, if you unless you've been around here for a while, you've never heard that before. 
So that, that's number one. Number two, that a convert was chosen by God to guard, to nurture, not, not to change and transform, not to usurp and, and manipulate, but to guard, to protect the Torah of Hashem. Not to reinterpret it. Ba'ya didn't sit down with little Moshe and say, okay, little Moshe, I know you've heard it said, but I tell you, Okay, Moshe, I know you're used to following this little calendar over here, but I've got a new calendar I made up all by myself. So it says here, the, to bathe in the Nile. This is an insight from the, from the Chehot. It says here, according to some opinions, Yocheved, that's Moshe's mother, could not place the basket directly in the water since the Egyptians worshipped the river. And the Torah perverts deriving any benefit from an idol, from an, uh, excuse me, any deriving any benefit from an object of idol worship. Mandy, you're 100% right. Mandy Voss says, sometimes converts are more careful to preserve the truth. That's 100% true, which is, there's a whole psychological discussion about that uh, with respect to why in Judaism today, in Judaism at large, is resistant to converts. And the answer is, and there's a whole study that's been done on this. I've got a book about it that uh, written by a Jewish psychologist that talks about the fact that one of the problems is is that converts are nine times out of ten more enthusiastic, more excited, more passionate, and it puts the born Jew to shame. And that's one of the issues. It's not it's 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 completely wrong and unhealthy for the born Jew to think that way, right? But that's part of the problem. Anyway, so it says here, Torah prohibits deriving any benefit from an idol uh, or any benefit at all, even for Deco, right? So it says, yet she knew prophetically that the river's status as an idol would soon be abrogated, rendering it permissible for use. So Yochaved knew by the Spirit that she would be able to use the Nile, because it was soon to be to be rendered, uh, um, or excuse me, that, that it's 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 idle status. I'm, I'm sorry, lost my train of thought for a quick second. Was soon to be rendered nullified. How was the Nile's idolatrous power nullified? How was the Nile's idolatrous status abrogated and the answer given is that when Batya immersed herself in the river and used it as a mikvah for conversion to Torah true Judaism that at that moment she Batya the convert nullified the idolatrous status of the Nile River now, ladies and gentlemen, that's phenomenal because what does the pattern therefore show us? The power, the pattern shows us that idolatry will be nullified when the nations convert to Lapid Judaism. I say Lapid Judaism because it's the Judaism that believes in Messiah Yeshua, so naturally. 
That's what the pattern shows us. In fact, some time ago, uh, we added, we started using the second paragraph of the Elenu in our services. One of the reasons we did that was because the second uh, paragraph of the Elenu is said to be a paragraph that speaks specifically of the final redemption and, and the ingathering of the nations. And it's interesting because what does it say in the second paragraph of the Elenu? It talks about when idolatry, when detestable idolatry will be removed from the earth. So the correlation is, is that when will detestable idolatry be removed from the earth? When the nations come into the covenant. So the battle against idolatry. See, some, very often when we're fighting a sickness, we combat the symptoms. Sometimes we combat the root cause. Okay. Um, and there was a, there's a, there's a story and I, I won't get into it, but there's a big long story about back in the, I think it was the, um, 1800s or something like that about a disease that was going around. They long, long, long story short, they discovered that the root cause was that the doctors who were going from one patient to the another were not washing their hands and therefore the disease was spreading. So the root cause was a failure to wash the hands. See, oftentimes we want to combat idolatry by attacking the symptoms, but the root cause of idolatry is the fact that the nations have not yet converted. Because the pattern we see, spoken to us from the insights here, is that the Nile was nullified when the daughter of Pharaoh decided to become a Jew. As long as she said, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Jew, then the Nile was not nullified. Now, going back to the birth of, uh, of Moshe. <clears throat> it says here in the, in, the, in the expanded version that they saw that he was good. So it says, our sages teach us that this also means that Moses was born circumcised, indicating that his body contained no admixture of evil. Hold on one second. Let me go ahead and... Uh, I'm not sure what this person is all about, but I'm going to go ahead and ban them anyway because they're not on topic. There we go. And we're going to go ahead and delete that. I'm so sorry. Pardon me, ladies and gentlemen. People are not allowed to rant on the Aliyah day. And that's everybody, right? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Sorry. Apologies. Okay, so it says here, um, uh, no admixture of evil was found in him. He was thus fit for his holy calling from birth. So he was born a redeemer. Okay. And there was no admixture of evil in him. So there was no evil found in him. So it says, these two circumstances surrounding Moses' birth expressed his two qualifications for leadership. Being born circumcised indicates his unique spiritual stature and holiness. So there's an idea that he was literally born circumcised. There's also an implication that his circumcision was of a higher nature. It was 
maybe not necessarily that he was literally born circumcised, which I'm assuming that some say he was, but the other idea is that he was circumcised to the extent that he had he that he was a pure soul. Born without sin, you might say. So it's the house becoming the, the house when he was born, it says, became filled with light when he was born, indicating that he had a unique ability to disseminate holiness and that he was essentially good. So about the birth of the Redeemer, I want you to point out that it's associated with light filling the house. It's associated with his essential nature being pure and that he was essentially good. And one more thing as we conclude today. Rabbi Monk points out, it says here, the Torah here omits naming the father and mother of Moses. It's curious, isn't it? It doesn't mention who his mother and father was. It is as if Moses' birth is shrouded in mystery, Rabbi Monk writes. So interestingly, the birth of the Redeemer, when we're talking about the story of Moses, who is the archetype of the Messiah and David, that the Torah curiously doesn't mention anything about his father or mother. And Rabbi Monk points out, this seems to envelop his birth in a shroud of mystery. It's almost to say, this is my words, not his, it's almost to say, to imply, to infer, to hint towards a supernatural birth, a, a birth that did, that did not involve a father and mother. And you can say, well, but there was a father and mother. And there was. In fact, it says, even if you want to, and, and we, we agree that he was born of natural means, but even, even there it says that Yochavid was 130 and that her uh, conception was supernaturally brought about by the hand of God. All that around the birth of the Redeemer. End of our Aliyah today. More tomorrow. As we always say, we're out of time but never out of content. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you. Have a great, wonderful, and amazing day. Be safe, be blessed, and with God's help, we will all be back here tomorrow to continue our study of Shemot. Shalom and blessings. Have a fantastic afternoon.